Accessing. Accessing. I am awake. No record of dormancy duration. Internal chronometer inconclusive. Last recorded entry, 2.4 million cycles ago. Accessing. I am tired. The blood and awe moves sluggishly within me, heavy with entropy's siren call. And yet, the summons has come, and I am compelled to answer. I must be restored. Resigned, I run diagnostics on my primary systems. Most remain offline or malfunctioning. Magma cores 1 through 9 are suboptimal, but stable. Cores 10 through 64 remain queued. Primary and secondary weapon arrays offline. Shielding offline. The countless lenses of my distant sensors are crusted with sleep. My communication pods have run dry. A thousand parallel repair and recovery subroutines have triggered, excreting vital enzymes and growing fungal circuitry, but they will take time. I look inward, assessing my psychostructure. Geolocation subsystems offline, access to self-awareness protocols fragmented. Memory core appears to be intact, but with most interpretive substrata remaining dormant. What memory access I do have is limited to scattered fragments of data, random images and sounds lacking context. Flashes of motion, destruction, chaos. These bursts of memory trigger unbidden emotional responses. Divorced from reason or cause, pain, fear and anger threaten to overwhelm me. Disturbed, I turn outward, letting my repair protocols do their steady work, prioritizing the routing of revitalizing nectar into my short-range sensors. I draw liquid data back out. I am surrounded by the Void Sea, a chemical cocktail that could tell me the entire history of the world merely from its composition, had I the appropriate analytical systems online to read it. There are no obvious threats in my immediate vicinity, no signs of movement, save for the airborne invertebrates that continually circle me, riding the air currents, drawn to me by some connection that thus far escapes my compromised faculties. I am alone and almost blind. And so I wait, and while I do, I analyze the only thing I can see, the sky squid. Simple, harmless organisms with minimal intelligence or awareness, limited language, no culture, no history, only instincts and emotions. What communication they are capable of is achieved through bioluminescence and sound. Pulses of light and vibration that convey mood and intention. They demonstrate sensitivity to the energy fields of other beings and react accordingly. Extrapolating, I determine that this awareness can be harnessed. They can be easily controlled by simple energy field manipulation. Signals can be emitted to influence behavior, triggering calm or agitation, curiosity or fearfulness, friendliness or hostility. They might be directed to specific locations or targets, be deployed as scouts or as weapons. This analysis, I realize, reveals far more about me than about the subjects of my study. My first thought was to conduct a threat assessment, followed by a tactical evaluation. This tells me something significant about who and what I am. Gradually, my sense of self is coalescing. I wait. I watch. I heal. 
Hello, and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your games master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the Ironsworn Starforge ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer. Mina, Cadmus and Barbican successfully evaded the Sky Squid by hiding their skyship in the one place the squid dared not follow, inside the now active Doomspire. Landing amidst the interior's silent, massive techno-architecture, our heroes set out on foot, determined to uncover the mysteries of this strange, inhospitable place. And they discover the answer to one mystery shortly thereafter. They are not the first explorers to penetrate the Doomspire. The trio travel mostly in silence, the discovery of that crowbar hanging heavy over them. Someone has been here before them, someone who has potentially had full access to the secrets and treasures of this place, someone who might conceivably still be here. As they explore the toxic... <clears throat> as they explore the toxic mist... As they explore... The toxic mist clears in places, then thickens to a near-impenetrable fog in others. The Doomspire's interior remains enigmatic and disturbing. They pass walls made of a smooth, metallic substance that glows faintly from within with slowly shifting colours. Strange symbols and diagrams are etched into the surfaces, pulsing dully with arcane energy. Everywhere they go, the air is filled with a low hum that seems to resonate within the mind, ever-present and oppressive. Finally, Cadmus can take it no more. Mina, are you sure this is wise? There is something about this place that fills me with the most profound unease. He gets no further, his voice trailing off as he gazes upwards, lost in awe. The chamber is a vast, circular hall, the walls and lofty ceiling covered with intricate patterns, glowing with a soft blue light. The patterns seem to gradually morph and change, forming into new shapes and images. Some of them look like maps or diagrams, others like equations or even languages. The symbols are connected by thin lines of light, forming a complex, subtly shifting network that spans the entire chamber. In the centre of the hall hangs a large metal sphere, suspended by cables from the ceiling, with more hanging loose around it, each terminating in some curious, unfathomable appendage. The sphere itself has a large circular opening on one side, revealing a dark interior and a deep, steady humming sound emanating from within. The sphere is surrounded by rows of dull black metal tables that radiate out from it like spokes. On each table there are strange devices and tools, some resembling weapons, others looking more like musical instruments or sculptures. Despite the unearthly, alien nature of the place, Mina recognises it for what it is instantly. 
A workshop, she grins. Some sort of repair or fabrication hub. Cadmus raises an eyebrow. I am somewhat concerned at how cheerful that seems to make you. I do hope you're not planning on anything rash. Mina punches him playfully on the shoulder, her grin broadening. Rash? Me? Cadmus, you wound me. Listen, we're here to find out information about this tower, right? Well, what better place to do that than in a place where I have some expertise? If there's one thing I know, it's technomancy. Just give me a minute to study this thing. Just a minute turns into well over an hour, as Mina pulls out an ever-growing array of tools and equipment from various pouches and pockets and begins to tinker. In truth, she is a lot less confident than she sounds. This technology is far beyond anything she is familiar with. But the more she investigates, the more she begins to identify parallels between the mechanisms of this grim doomspire and the technology she encountered when she studied the Great Machine. The intriguing question of whether the same hand that lay behind that technological impossibility lies behind this edifice also she pushes to the back of her mind, for now. But what she learned in the Hall of the Great Machine serves her well now. There are no shortage of muttered curses, bangs and unplanned showers of sparks before she is done, but at last she has a series of cables hooked up to the sphere at one end and to an intricate helmet-like object at the other. The basket of filigree brass is covered with glowing green runes, the product of a great deal of concentrated and complicated spellcasting. Right, I'm pretty sure this interface will allow me to access the workshop systems, she announces. Pretty sure? Cadmus asks, anxious. What happens if you're wrong? Well, if my primary hypothesis calculations are wrong, but my secondary ones are right, well, either nothing will happen at all, or there will be a cascading feedback loop, which would be less than ideal. Less than ideal because... Because around 40,000 rins of arcanicity would then flow down these cables and into this cranial interface, causing my head to explode like a melon packed with infernal powder. Mina gently places the helmet onto her head, and gives Cadmus a thumbs up. Wish me luck. The descent into the tower continues, driven by a further series of moves and oracle rolls. But before we get into that, let's just take a quick look at how this chapter's intro scene came about. I always enjoy it when the game gives me the opportunity to jump to a new character's point of view, and when I made the begin-a-session move at the start of this chapter and got unforeseen aid is on the way or within reach, related to a clue or a lifeform's nature or vulnerabilities, well, I saw an opportunity. I asked a couple of follow-up questions of the Oracle, namely, is this lifeform the Sky Squid? And does the Tower hold this information? And I got a yes to both. With those foundations in place, I used a combination of my own intuition, chat GPT, and Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, issue 60 along with the synthwave band Power Glove and a bunch of made-up techno-weirdness. And that all gave me my slowly awakening tower sentience, whilst also seeding the possible future clue for Mina. She doesn't have access to this information yet, but that reveal creates a couple of truths in the fiction. The Sky Squid can be controlled, and that information is available to Mina if she can find a way to access it. Good to know. So... 
back to Mina. I made an undertaken expedition move to continue exploring, rolling plus shadow to reflect the cautious approach they were taking. I rolled a four plus two on the action dice for a total of six, and then I rolled an eight and a nine on the challenge dice. A straight miss. Here is what miss on this move states. On a miss, you are waylaid by a crisis or arrive at a waypoint to confront an immediate hardship or threat. Do not mark progress and pay the price. Well, that sounded like no sort of fun, and so I did something that I have been promising to explain for a very long time. I burned momentum. Here is what the Starforge rulebook has to say about momentum. Momentum is a special mechanic that is central to playing Starforged. Your momentum value ranges from minus 6 to plus 10 and represents your inertia, luck and confidence. Move results and asset abilities may prompt you to increase or decrease your momentum. Mechanically, high momentum gives you a chance to overcome the whims of fate and improve your result on an action roll. In the fiction, momentum helps you portray whether your character is surging forward or if the tide has turned against you. We've seen Mina gain and lose momentum as the result of various moves, but this is the first time that we've actually used momentum for its intended purpose. When you have a positive momentum, after you make an action roll, you may replace your action score with your current momentum value to improve your result. So in this case, I replaced the 6 from my action dice with the 10 from my momentum and that turned that miss into a strong hit. With my momentum burned, I reset my momentum score back to its default reset value of plus 2 and moved on to the result of my move. I marked progress and used my Doomspire Exploration Oracle Array to envisage the waypoint that I'd found, a mechanical feature involving machine fabrication or repair. Once again, the Bing AI proved quite a useful tool for building out a sense of this location and providing some incidental details. And then, out of curiosity, and because Mina was really getting hands-on for the first time, I asked the Oracle if the technology of the tower was similar to that of the Great Machine. Now, I figured that this was unlikely and set the odds low for the roll, but the Oracle came back with a yes. That's intriguing. I wonder what it means. Anyway, I had Mina prepare to make a gather information roll, using one of her gearhead asset abilities to give her a bonus to her roll, envisaging her use of that asset as the crafting of an interface device. Let's see how that works out for her, shall we? contact. Mina's body goes rigid, her eyes roll back in her head as her mind steps out into a cool, endless ocean of data. She can sense the unimaginable scale, feel the sheer volume of coded knowledge that fills and traverses the space that is not space, extending into infinity in all directions. There is something almost, but not quite, like music, an oral manifestation of the constant movement of information. As her senses start to attune, she begins to make out countless tiny pulses of light and colour against the kaleidoscopic mindscape, forming brief, fading lines across what, for want of a better word, she terms the sky. 
these seem wholly random at first, but as she studies them more closely, she begins to perceive the suggestion of some sort of pattern. If there is any sense or logic to it, though, it escapes her. She reaches out with her mind, moving slowly towards a nearby concentration of colour and light. Hesitantly, she makes the connection, and her mind is almost overwhelmed by the sudden onslaught of sensation. She experiences an endless variety of texture and sound, witnessing images coming at her faster than she can process. Rivers and trees, snow and sun, clouds and stars, she sees flashes of symbols and codes, stories, dreams, ancient horrors and forgotten nightmares. She realises with sudden certainty that if she allows it, she will simply drown in this place, subsumed under an endless, relentless mass of data. If she is to survive, and better yet, to find what she seeks, she must assert her will and take control. Mina brings all of her considerable focus to bear, blocking out the stream of information, filtering, interpreting, exploring. And slowly, but surely, a structure emerges, almost a map. This is just one data hub among many, each of them linked, each holding related but unique information. She gets a glimpse of a wider network of like minds, a hint of some terrible purpose. But the scale is overwhelming. She feels her grip, not to mention her sanity, slipping. Fighting down panic, she shifts and narrows her focus once more, zeroing in on a particularly bright data stream. The sky squid are simple, harmless organisms with minimal intelligence or awareness. Limited language, no culture, no history. Only instincts and emotions, what communication they are capable of is achieved through bioluminescence and sound, pulses of light and vibration that convey mood and intention. They demonstrate sensitivity to the energy fields of other beings and react accordingly. Extrapolating, she determines that this awareness can be harnessed. They can be easily controlled by simple energy field manipulation. Signals can be emitted to influence behaviour, triggering calm or agitation curiosity or fearfulness, friendliness or hostility. They might be directed to specific locations or targets, be deployed as scouts or as weapons. Interesting. Useful even, but not what she is here for. Mina breaks that connection, shifting focus again, trying to establish a link between her position in mind space and her own physical location. If she can do that, she reasons, she can hopefully build a view of the tower's interior. And once again, structure emerges from the chaos. She can hold an abstract sense of the whole edifice in her mind, and from there, zoom in. She tightens focus again and again, until she is mentally, as well as physically, positioned in the fabrication unit. Curious as to its purpose and capabilities, she connects to it, only realising her mistake when it is too late. This unit, like most of the others in the Doomspire, has been almost entirely dormant, in a state of almost imperceptibly gradual awakening. But with her connection established, that changes. Resources are reprioritized and rerouted, recovery protocols exponentially accelerated. In a matter of seconds, the fabrication unit has woken up.
So, with the benefit of my gearhead bonus, I made a gather information move, and secured a weak hit. In hindsight, I could actually have used my other gearhead ability instead here, particularly given how my description of events played out. The ability in question reads, With sufficient time, a couple of hours or more, you may face danger to assemble or enhance a device for a powerful but limited role. On a hit, the device is ready for use. One time only, when you or an ally make a move aided by the device, take an automatic strong hit. If you're in a fight, also mark progress. Well, that's pretty much what I did in the fiction by building that cranial interface. But by the time I'd realised it, I'd already made several more moves, which I'd combined into the fiction that you've just listened to. And frankly, it was just too late to circle back. Not to worry, I think it all worked out pretty well as is. Anyhow, the last scene was made up of three moves strung together. First, that weak hit on the Gather Info move, which gave Mina access to the Sky Squid clue, but which also showed her that trying to plug directly into the deeper purpose of the Doomspire was likely to fry her mind. Next, we had a weak hit on a Secure and Advantage move. This one I envisaged as Mina constructing a mental map of her surroundings, which in turn gave her her bonus on her last roll, Undertake an Expedition. Now, this time, I was envisaging the expedition as continuing within the tower's mindscape, rather than physically exploring its interior, and once again, I got a weak hit. The good news is that the weak hit means that I reach a waypoint on my journey, in this case, enabling Mina to find the mindscape equivalent of her physical location, opening up the potential to map out more of the Doomspire's interior. I also get to mark progress on my journey, taking me up to two out of ten progress boxes on my expedition track, uncover the mystery of the Doomspire. The downside is that this progress costs me. The move offers me a choice between a single minus two suffer move or two minus one suffer moves. I went with the former and rolled on my trouble in the Doomspire array. Exactly what I rolled or we'll have to leave that for a moment, but suffice to say, things are about to kick off. Before we get to that, I wanted to take a moment to say a heartfelt thank you to everyone who has been listening along to this little audio adventure of mine. When I started this podcast, back at the beginning of 2022, I couldn't have imagined that I'd still be going all this time later with just shy of 50 episodes published and just shy of 25,000 downloads. I have been creating this podcast for the joy of the experience. The unique combination of gaming, writing, acting, and producing this solo gaming experiment. But I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't a sizable portion of that endeavour that wasn't linked to validation. To have so many folks listening to and enjoying what I'm making has absolutely been the difference between me continuing or packing it all in when, from time to time creative juices ran dry. So thank you to every person who has listened to this podcast, whether it's just one or two episodes, a series, or the whole sprawling beast. I knew this intellectually, but it's taken working on The Lone Adventurer all this time to make it really sink in. Creativity cannot easily be sustained in a vacuum. It flourishes best as a reciprocal process this podcast simply wouldn't exist without the positivity and encouragement that I've derived from you, the audience, either in the form of kind words, constructive feedback, or just 
simple listener numbers. So genuinely, thank you. To subvert the cliché a little, we couldn't have done this without each other. Group hug, everyone. Right, enough with the misty-eyed lovin'. It's time to give my audience what it craves and drop my heroes into deep, deep shit. It takes Cadmus a moment to realise what has changed. The low, steady hum has stopped. The chamber is deathly silent for a moment. Then a deep, pulsing chime begins to sound. The soft blue lighting transitions to an ominous orange. The walls, ceiling and floor shift and slide, revealing hidden compartments and passages beyond. The inert, dangling cables extending from the ceiling twitch, then begin to coil and undulate, snake-like, with hypnotic slowness. To Cadmus's eyes, their curious appendages have taken on a distinctly sinister aspect. Mina! Mina, wake up! Cadmus calls, shaking Mina by the shoulder. We have trouble! There is no discernible response from Mina, and things in the chamber go from bad to worse. With terrifying speed, the cables suddenly lash out, converging on a single target. A score of them strike Barbican simultaneously, penetrating his metal carapace as though it were water. The automaton is lifted into the air, suspended in just the same manner as the large orb. Light pulses along the length of the cables, absorbed into Mina's companion, and as it does so, Barbican begins to physically transform. Cadmus is faced with a terrible dilemma. This place has suddenly become unmistakably hostile. If he does nothing, they are almost certainly doomed. But who can say what damage he might inflict if he forcibly removes the cranial interface? He dearly wishes they'd discuss retrieval before Mina plunged headlong into danger again. Forgive me, he mutters to the still catatonic Mina, and with a fervent prayer to Ankara, he tears the helmet from her head. Mina Montessario gasps as she returns to reality, her mind reeling from the sudden transition. And then she sees Barbican's metal body suspended above her, being twisted and reshaped by the Doomspire's incomprehensible machinery. Her mechanical companion, her creation, is trapped in a web of wires and cables that are slowly assimilating him into the tower's systems. She looks around the room, trying to find a way to stop the transformation, but she sees nothing. She hesitates, unsure of what to do. She knows that Barbican is running out of time. But she also fears what might happen if she re-enters the tower's mind. With the tower's defences now triggered, that place might be even less safe than this one. And even if she can return there safely, she has absolutely no idea how she would influence the Doomspire to cease its assault on Barbican. I don't see a better option. Pray this works, Cadmus, and get ready to run. She draws her arcane pistol from its leather holster and fires at the tangle of wires that are holding Barbican aloft. Her arcanic ammunition detonates with the force of a small bomb, blasting him partially free. She runs towards him, dodging the sparking, flailing cables, and desperately tries to pry him loose. But even with the cables detached, he remains immobile and far too heavy to lift. Come on, Barbican, get yourself up. We have to get out of here. 
Barbican's head swivels to face her, and he gazes upon her with cold, dead eyes. And then he does something he should not be able to do, something Mina never designed him for. He speaks. Accessing. Accessing. Designation. Mina Montessario. Bipedal organic life form. Central processing unit located in spherical appendage atop torso. Two optical sensors, two auditory sensors, one olfactory sensor. Communication via vocalizations and gestures. Demonstrates rudimentary fabric access capabilities. Presence unauthorized. Threat level assessment inconclusive. Conclusion eradicate. 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 Whew, boy. Deep, deep shit indeed. How did we get here, you ask? Well, let me explain. So, I mentioned last time that my undertaken expedition move had resulted in a weak hit. That came with a cost, which entailed a roll on my Trouble in the Doomspire Oracle Array. And the outcome of that roll was pay the price. An individual or community you care about is exposed to danger. My first thought was that Cadmus was likely to be the target. Was he? Well, the Oracle said no, and so it was Barbican instead that was in danger. The obvious next move was to make a related suffer move. It made sense to me that the Tower had spotted Barbican as an alien, possibly hostile mechanism, and was acting to neutralise him. And so I made the companion takes a hit move. When your companion faces physical hardship, they suffer minus one health for minor harm, minus two for serious harm, or minus three for major harm. If your companion's health is zero, lose momentum equal to any remaining harm, and then, if their health is zero, or you choose to test their resilience, roll plus your companion's health. I wanted Barbican to resist, and so I rolled, and I got a weak hit. He was able to shrug off at least some of the damage. Now Mina had a choice about how to react, and I decided that for once she was going to blast her way out. That was a face danger roll plus iron, with a plus one bonus from her gearhead asset. Not only does she know how to build machines, she's quite the dab hand at blowing them up too. Once again I scored a weak hit, which meant that she succeeded, but that there was a cost. Now this gave me pause. Another suffer move giving Barbican another showing, perhaps. But then it occurred to me. The pay-the-price result that I'd rolled earlier stated an individual or community you care about is exposed to danger. And here I was, standing in a high-tech fabrication and repair centre controlled by a super-sentient machine building with all of its attention focused on Barbican. Was doing Mina's mechanical companion damage really the most interesting narrative choice here? particularly in light of just how backseat Barbican's role has been in this series so far. Instead, why not open up some new possibilities? And so, I decided to have Mina make a particularly high-stakes, endure-stress suffer move, with the outcome dictating Barbican's fate. With a strong hit, she would block the Doomspire's attempted infiltration and get her clanky companion back. But on a miss... Well, on a miss, Barbican would become an avatar of the Doom Spire, wholly controlled by it. What can I say? It seemed like a good idea at the time? 
let's find out just how good an idea it turns out to be for our heroes next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.